Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. You know, most of the time when artists come into the studio, um, I have to talk to them about the thing that they're here to talk about, like a tour or an album. The great thing about Katie Lang getting the Governor General's Award, like the highest honor a Canadian artist can achieve, the great thing about it is that we can talk about everything. And we do. We talk about her incredible career, uh, how groundbreaking she was, and whether she's ever going to make new music again. Katie Lang is coming up. Plus, what would you do if you could live yesterday over again knowing what you know now. That's kind of the premise behind Patrick J. Adams' new show, Plan B. But he'll tell you it's about way more than that, including, like, what happens when we realize there are no do-overs in life. Patrick J. Adams is coming up. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. Katie Lang is one of the biggest music stars ever from Canada. She's from Consort, Alberta. She started out making country music. And she'll tell you, in those early days of country music, she didn't really look like a country star. She had short hair and glasses and suits. and But she sounded incredible. Take a listen. How can't you feel my love growing? Can't you see it ain't a show? I think if you only half know Katie Lang, you know there's something subversive about her. And it was hard back in those days. Like in 1992, she came out as gay publicly, which brought all this hostility towards her. She talked about being a vegetarian, which made a lot of folks in Alberta hostile towards her. And she sort of left country music and made a big pop crossover record. And that made country people hostile towards her. But man, it paid off. Take a listen. And So now Katie Lang is about to receive the highest honor in Canadian art. She's getting the Governor General's Award for Lifetime Artistic Achievement. What I love about Katie is that she'll tell you, she can't tell you why her life turned out the way that it did, but she can share some memories. And that's what we did. Here's my conversation with Katie Lang. How are you? I'm good, my friend. How are you? I'm good. Nice to talk to you as always. Congratulations. Thank you. What do you make of it? It's wonderful. I mean, first of all, it's just an incredible honor. There's so many incredible Canadian artists and the list of people who have received the honor in the past is it's it's very surreal and uh makes me feel old. Why is it surreal? Uh just because I think it's very very hard to have actual perspective on your own life. It's like asking an apple how how it tastes. An apple has no idea how it tastes. <laughs> it's hard to step outside of it because you're in it. Yeah. I have no idea about my life or my career. I have memories, but in terms of perspective, I have none. You know, that makes the two of us. Mm. Yeah, good. <laughs> I'm in good company. <laughs> You want, you want to talk to someone else who doesn't know anything about your career? I'm only kidding. Um, well, let's get some memories then. 
do you have a first memory of knowing that you had a that you had a, a voice that might be a bit special? I remember, I, of course, I had a guitar when I was really, really young, and we had this mirror, this full-length mirror at the end of the hallway in our house, and I was playing the guitar in front of the mirror, and I just kind of knew. I just instinctively, innately knew that this was it, that this is what my path was. And I think it was more about being famous than it was being a singer. <laughs> You you stood there with the guitar and you weren't thinking like, oh, there's something coming out of me singing wise. It was like, I want to be a big, famous music star. It wasn't even I want to be. It was like, oh, this is what I am. Well, let's jog some of those memories then. I got a song here from uh, your Patsy Cline tribute band. Uh, they were called The Reclines. And this is a song called Friday Dance Promenade. Deputy to my hair to style. Study the mirror for a while Take you home to wine and dine Put on the high-fives and Patsy Cline I'm in love, L-O-V-E, love Swing your partner, swing them high All a man left and leave side Yeah, okay, so... I was kind of aimlessly looking for something to do when I was living in Edmonton. I, I, I knew I wanted to be in, in music, but I wasn't sure how I wanted to present myself and so forth. And there, there was an ad in the newspaper for a, 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 a deal at this at record at, at this recording studio in Edmonton for $500. You press a thousand singles and you got to record it and mix it. I asked my mom, she gave me the $500. I went in and then I met Larry Wanagas, who became my manager, who owned the studio. I showed up in this homemade sweatshirt that I had. I, I had written what I thought was Patsy on, like painted Patsy on the sweatshirt, but I was stoned when I did it and it was pasty. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> That stuff sort of happens, you know. Uh, <laughs> why why was Patsy Klein why why was Patsy Klein important to you? Something happened when I listened to Patsy Klein that unlocked all these portals in my mind about how I could approach country music. I go out walking after midnight out in the Humor and the costumes and performance art and sincerity. And I don't know, there was something about Patsy that just took my soul and my brain and went this way. She just was the impetus for all of it, really. I want to skip ahead a little bit to 1985. And you win the Juno Award for Most Promising Female Vocalist. And it's funny, you were just mentioning like how country music helped unlock a very funny part of yourself, like a mischievous part of yourself. And I think that really comes across in that year because at the Junos, you wear this big fluffy wedding dress and you're whipping around the stage and you're doing a jig. 
What do you remember about that? The recent history of myself at that time, I was very in, immersed in performance art and hanging around artists. So, you know, it was performance art based, but it did have sincerity in it. I promise that I will work harder next year than I have in the past two years. But most of all, I promise that I continue to sing for only the right reasons. Thank you very much. I love you. I, I was very happy to win that Juno. It meant a lot to me. I remember saying that I, I promised to sing for all the right reasons, which was, you know, authenticity and truth and try not to sell out and try to, to retain um, a deep connection to pure inspiration, which is very difficult sometimes. It's difficult to, re- re- to keep that connection to pure inspiration because money gets involved and other people get involved and, and people who are trying to stop you from trusting your instincts and all that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, marketing and what works, you know, formulaic intent and expectations. It, it makes sense, right? Because then you, the music you keep on making is sort of beloved because of its sort of undeniable quality, like an undeniable purity and an undeniable like musicality. I just want to, I want to play another one of those songs right now. So this is, you won the first Grammy in 89 um, and it was for the duet you did with Roy Orbison. Take a listen. So that duet earned you a Grammy for country collaboration in 1989. You also won for female country vocal performance. My guess is you don't listen to your own music very often. What did you feel when you heard that just then? Mm. Oh, I was I was remembering Roy, and I was re- you know, oof, that boy was full of emotion. Like he was just all of you know when he sang, it just you couldn't help. You couldn't you couldn't stop the hairs on your arm from standing. Ah, he was just so ethereal and, and mysterious. Um, very, very quiet, but um, warm and open. Very elusive, but an incredible experience. I, I've told this many times when we were recording it, that in Vancouver, we leaned in when we were rehearsing it. Or maybe we were taking an actual track, I don't know. But we leaned in to share a microphone and our cheeks touched and it was so electric. And his skin was so soft and his voice was so powerful. It was just all these like contrasting emotions. It was incredible. That's beautiful. That 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 time, Katie, when, when crying comes out and when you win that Grammy, it gets really, really big. Do you remember a moment where the kind of fame started to sink in the moment you realized that your music was reaching people all around the world? When you were asking me that question, this moment popped in my mind when we were making Black and White Nights with Roy Orbison and I was um, 
I was a part of the backup singers with Bonnie Rayat and um, Jennifer Warren's J.D. Souther, Jackson Brown. I'm forgetting one person. But anyway, we were on stage and I look out to the audience and there's all these people. And um, I had the high part in Only Dreams. No. In Dreams. In Dreams. And I had the high part. And so at the end... Really, really high soprano part, and I look out, and Billy Eilish, uh, Billy Eilish, Billy <laughs> Idol, <laughs> Billy Eilish wasn't even born yet. She wasn't, yeah, she wasn't, she wasn't <laughs> a speck in her mother's eye at that point. <laughs> <laughs> Billy Idol was looking at me, and I just kind of like gave him his own snarl back, and was like, "Yeah, okay, there it is." I can't help it. I can't help it if I cry. And there's Bruce Springsteen and Elvis Costello on stage and Tom Waits, oh my God, playing keyboard. Wow. I had the DVD of that when I was growing up and I watched it over and over again. You didn't look out of place to me. Like you looked like you belonged there every time I watched it. Oh, I I definitely belonged there. I was in it. I was, I was fully fully present for that. That was just an incredible experience. You did something, and the first time I met you, we talked about this. You did something that surprised a lot of your fans in 92. You come out with Ingenue, you had sort of had um, a lot of success and, and a lot of expectations on you, is my understanding, as a country singer. And the songs on Ingenue were a bit poppier. They were a bit harder to define. Uh, I'll just play one of them. That's so beautiful. That's Katie Lang and Miss Chatelaine. I think a lot of people were expecting more country music from you. What do you remember about the decision to to veer away from that, Alangenu? For my whole country career, I knew it was just a temporary residence in country music because I, I never listened to country music as a kid. I, I was aware of it, mostly through KTEL ads, you know, when those used to come on the TV. But I, I kind of shunned country music as a kid, you know, it wasn't cool. And I was listening to Cream and Maria Muldoor and, you know, Delaney and Bonnie Bramlett. And country music was just a piece of performance art for me, ultimately, although the music I sang with utmost respect and homage and, and uh, because there's so much truth in the music emotionally. But, you know, I think when I look back at my music, even Ingenue, I it, it's all performance art. How do you mean? I mean that it's it, not one record could ever completely encapsulate who I am or who I want to be or what my musical taste is. Like it's 
very, very small increments of, of, or refractions of, of what I am. I, I understand that. I also understand that Ingenue, it, it, it came with sort of this backlash from the country music establishment, I think from people who were kind of like, I thought she was one of ours. I did. Yes, I remember that part. Um, it was kind of this weird user-friendly relationship with, with country music. I don't think they wanted to fully embrace me, and I don't. I certainly didn't want to be be fully embraced by them. I was creating a buzz for new, younger audience for country music, but at the same time, I don't think they really wanted to embrace my lesbianism or my vegetarianism or, you know, my short hair, my crazy cowboy boots and. They were sort of disappointed, but I think they were kind of relieved when I moved on. Right. It was around then that you – we talked about this before. It was around then that you came out publicly in The Advocate, right? It was around the same time? Yeah, I came out in uh, 1991, just before Ingenue came out, in press for Ingenue. Well, officially. I mean, I don't think I was ever in the closet. I don't think that I ever pretended to be anyone who I was except who I was. Yeah. What do you remember from, from the public part of that? Well, it was on the heels of the PETA thing, you know, the Meat Stinks campaign I did with PETA, which was extremely volatile and hard on, hard, hard on everybody, hard on my mom, hard on my, hard on, on my friends and people in, in Canada here. Right. The, I should say for people who don't know, the, the, the Meat Stinks thing you're talking about were these like ads you had done with PETA promoting vegetarianism. Meat stinks, and not just for the animals, but for human health and the environment. Please write me on a free brochure on how to become a vegetarian. There's millions of us. And I'll even send you one of my favorite recipes. You got a lot of heat for that at home. Yeah, you know, bomb threats at the record company and so forth. It, it was, that was the hard part. So coming out was a piece of cake, actually. I've, I've heard you reflect back on this time of your life. And you said something like, when I look back to that time around Ingenue, you know, when the, the record blew up and, and Miss Chatelaine blew up and then, you know, I, I, I came out and there was a lot of like attention on that because I'd come out very publicly, that you, you felt like that was the time you became public property. What do you mean by that? I think more so with my sexuality, I think, because at that time, the AIDS crisis was in full born, full blast. I mean, it was, you know, a lot of people were dying. And so I came up because I thought it was an important, responsible thing to do to open myself up to, to having people have a connection to what gay culture is. So I came out so people would have some relatability to it. And I also didn't want to be outed by Queer Nation. I just thought it would be more graceful if I just stood up and and t took my accountability. How comfortable were you with these? Are very personal things like what you eat and what and who you love are very personal things. How comfortable were you with attention on that kind of thing? I think it was mixed because. Unfortunately, it afforded me more media. I mean, fortunately and unfortunately, it afforded me more attention, which is why we're in the business and to begin with, quite honestly. I mean, it was a catch-22, you know, it was 
it 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 sort of commandeered my career from then on. I really think my sexuality ended up overshadowing my music for a long time if it still doesn't. You feel like you you feel like your your sexuality like being being gay was the dominant story over your music. Mm-hmm. I I kind of do. I, I kind of do, but hopefully over time people focus back on my music. I I feel like that sort of started to happen. Yeah. I'll tell you I'll tell you one of my favorite records you ever made was uh, can we just play a little bit of it? Take a listen to this one. Katie, do you want to tell me what we're listening to right now? Ah, uh, yeah, I like that one too. Honey and Smoke from the Case Lang Veers album, which was a collaboration I did with Nico Case and Laura Veers. I love that song. I love that song. Oh, thanks. I do too. I do too. Thank you. I really do love that song. It's funny to talk about Nico Case and Laura Veers. You collaborated with them. You told me a great Roy Orbison story earlier. Um, you, you, I know you, you work with you know, Tony Bennett and like all these incredible people. I wonder if I could get a memory from you about like one special collaboration you've done that still kind of blows your mind. Okay, I'm only doing this re- reactionary because it doesn't doesn't mean it's the top one, but the one that popped in my mind when you asked me that question was this this big concert I did in Wembley Stadium with with all these people and I sang with Shaka Khan and we sang a sting song, uh, Every Breath You Take. And man, singing beside Shaka Khan. Wow. Oh my God, she was so incredible. She was. She is such a great singer. What do you? What, what do you mean? Like, what do you? What do you remember feeling? I. I, I want to hear more about that. Like, it's amazing. Oh, just her freedom and her, the tone and the ease. I don't know. I think maybe it was my first, you know, real proxy to a great R&B singer. But man, she just blew me away. That moment blew me away. Shout out to Q producer Vanessa Greco for tracking down the actual performance. That's what you're listening to right now. Katie Lang and Shaka Khan doing Every Breath You Take recorded live at Wembley Stadium in 1997. You're going to hear more of my conversation with Katie Lang coming up. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. 
Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. If you rely on a muse in the first place, you have to trust when they're not there. I mean, I think that's where faith lies, right? I'm when I asked Katie Lang if she'd be making any more music and she said that, I was, I was bummed about it, but you can't argue with the logic. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. It makes sense, right? Katie Lang has been following muses her entire career, and we've been talking about that on the show today, from being in a Patsy Cline tribute band to making big country songs to making pop crossover records, political statements that took incredible courage. And we talked about this earlier, but I kept coming back to this moment at the 1985 Juno Awards, which are like the Canadian Grammys. And Katie Lang shows up in a big wedding dress, gets on stage, and makes a vow. Here's more of my conversation with Katie Lang. I'm thinking back to what you said at the beginning of our conversation. We were chatting about the Junos and the, and the wedding dress. And you said, yeah, I said, what do you remember about that? And you said, you vowed only to sing for the right reasons. And you talked to me about, you know, that, that reason was for, for purity, um, sort of an uncommercial, like doing things for, the, for, the, for the, the right reasons in service of art and service of the song. Has that changed at all over the years? No, it hasn't. It's gotten worse, actually. <laughs> the the perimeters and the uh, and the checklist has gotten shorter and and harder. A higher bar to hit. A higher bar. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I don't know. It's just there's there's you know when you're when you're on the showbiz train, there are a lot of opportunities, and there are a lot of salesmen, and there are a lot of people wanting to jump on, and. Uh, it just has to ring true. Like it really, like if somebody asks me to do something, it has to hit me on every level, like on my spiritual level, on my instinctual level, on my creative level and the humor level. Like it has to just ring with me. And if it doesn't, I have to pass. And that, and lots of times I've passed and it's not been the best for my career. Oh yeah, really? Yeah. Don't ask me, don't ask me for an example. I won't. I mean, I want to, but I won't. Okay. I know you. I could hear it. So are we going to hear from you again? Are you going to... I got to ask that. Are you going to make more music? I'd love... Uh, we, we, I'd like you to. I, I don't know. I, right now, I'm going to... Uh, right now, I, there's nothing. The, the vault is empty. You know, there, there are things that come up. Like, for example, there may be a new Case Langvier song. Not, not an album or anything, but a new song. There may be... A collaboration here and there, but um, in terms of me touring, in terms of me making another record, it's an empty vault. I don't know what to say. The muse is definitely not flying around in my space right now. Are you are you comfortable with that? That the muse isn't flying around? Yes, I am, because I think if you rely on a muse in the first place, you have to trust when they're not there. I mean, I think that's where faith lies, right? When it's empty and when it's not the way you want it to be necessarily, mm. that's faith. Oh, what a line! If you're going to rely on a muse at all, then you then you got to you got to also rely on it when it's not there too. Yeah, 
And I think, you know, you got to remember that the other part of music is silence. Wow. Yeah. The other, the, the, the part that's not the voice, the part that's not the singing, the part that's not the instruments, the part that's not the sonic presence. There needs to be a, uh, a silence in order for us to appreciate that thing. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm sad about it though. Cause you know, I love you and you know how much I love your singing. Well, if you've been doing your rehearsing, we do have a duet in the pipeline. So me and you, yeah, we were going to do one toke over the line at one point. Do you remember that? Exactly. <laughs> I know. I'm waiting in Lawrence Welk style, weren't we? <laughs> we were. Gonna, yes, I'm so happy you remember that. We were going to do one toke over the line by who is that by? One toke over the line, sitting downtown at a railway station. One toke over the. The muse is with me right now, Katie. Was it Mungo Jerry? Brewer and Shipley, by the way. Really, somebody looked it up. Vanessa here in the, in the studio looked it up because she's amazing. Yeah. Well, I'm most excited about our outfits. <laughs> Can I be Brewer and you be Shipley? Or do you sure. want to, what, yeah, what, whatever. What do you have in mind for our outfits? What are you thinking? Well, if we're doing it in Lawrence Welk style, it's going to have to be a velveteen tux and a long long gown. And you can wear the long gown if you want. I don't care. I am beyond in to this. Don't back out when I come knocking on the door saying we're going to do it. I won't. I won't. I promise you. I'm glad. Hey, before I let you go, anyone, any artists you love these days? Any new artists that are like exciting you? So many. Oh my God. So many. Give me one. Give me one. Give me a couple. Okay. One. This is just because again, it's the first one that popped in my head. There is a band called Say She She and they have a song called Fortune Teller and it is so stuck in my craw that I want to die. Like at four in the morning, this thing is like incessantly circulating in my brain. All right, I'll take a listen. What are they called again? Say, she, she. Yeah, and the song is what? Fortune Teller. All right, I'm going to look it up. I'm glad. I'm, I'm glad you're still listening to new music. I'm glad I get a chance to talk to you. I'm glad to talk to you too, sir. I love talking to you. Me too. Yeah, and I um, congratulations on the on the big award. Well, well deserved, and I, I hope. You can sometimes access the deep love that I feel like so many people in this country are like aiming towards you. You know, it's funny because I was watching basketball the other night, like I do, and I'm a Portland Trailblazer fan and Damian Lillard is my man. And uh, he just scored 71 points the other night. And, you know, there's something different about him. And I think it's because he really plays for the people. And I would like to think... That is also for the right reasons that 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 I don't own it, that I I sang for everybody. I sang because it's what I do. And so the love coming my way is definitely in reciprocity. Katie Lane, congratulations. Thanks for the time. Thank you. The coffee's all gone and my When most folks
legendary Canadian singer Katie Lang and Last Cigarette. She is soon going to receive one of the highest honors in Canadian arts, the Governor General's Award for Lifetime Artistic Achievement. If you ask me on the right day, if you ask me on the right day, I will I will say things like Katie Lang is the greatest singer in Canadian history. It depends on the day. Today is one of those days. It'll be official at a gala happening in Ottawa on May 27th. If you could turn back time, what would you do? Would you relive your childhood? Would you warn the world about the pandemic? Would you write a hit song for Cher called If I Could Turn Back Time? But if you could turn back time, like, would you act selfishly or would you try to help people? And that's one of the questions that the new CBC show Plan B asks. And Patrick J. Adams is the star of the show. He plays a sort of like toxic lawyer who is not great to his partner and finds himself with the ability to turn back time and fix his mistakes. Patrick J. Adams is a really thoughtful guest. He's a really thoughtful talker about whether or not we can learn from our mistakes and what it means that we can't turn back time, that the present is all we have and how how beautiful life really is. That's something I, I think about a lot. Patrick was the star of a show called Suits. He starred in that alongside Meghan Markle, you might remember. So we talk a little bit about that. And, and we start out by talking about something we noticed, that Patrick J. Adams tends to play a lot of lawyers. Take a listen to this. It's funny to, to look at how your career has kind of turned out with the, with the various kind of things you've done, including like a lot of, a lot of law gigs. So <laughs> I, I just read this the other day that the UCD Law Society in Dublin – Gave you an honorary life membership. Is that that's true? Yeah, yeah. That's one of those weird things that seems to happen when you're on um, a very successful show. It's just all these very surreal things come through the water. I remember I was on set when that got when I got told about that. I said they want to fly you to Dublin to give you an honorary degree, which is a thing I guess they do with people that they decide they want to. I guess there's like a committee somewhere, a student body that votes on who they want to bring over to do it. So they flew me to Dublin and I got to give a speech and meet all the students. And it was uh, that was early in the suits year. So it was just sort of a surreal um, train ride and it just didn't stop. Because because there's law in this new show, too. I mean, is there is there um, is there something to be read into that? Like, were you surrounded by lawyers or anything like that growing up? Uh, my mom says I'm an incredible arguer. I should have been on a debate team. I was not surrounded by lawyers. Um I don't know what it is. I don't know. I think uh, once I decide that I believe something or that I want something, I can be very um, tenacious about achieving that goal. That's been something that's been the case since I was a little boy, um, which is why my mom gets such a kick out of me playing lawyers on TV. But I think there is something to that, that I that I connect to material where, and this you know project on CBC, Plan B is very much the same. I mean, as a character 
who knows exactly the way that he thinks the world needs to be structured and organized in order for everybody to be happy. And if everybody would just do exactly what he thinks needs to be done, then everything would be good. And and while I don't think I live my life that way anymore, I can certainly connect to it. And I think I'm probably still working through some of that. And that's why these roles keep sort of showing up into my into my life. I mean, that's an interesting way of thinking about this character. You know, for, for people who haven't seen the show, it's it's a you work in a law firm, yeah, but it's like it's also sort of a relationship relationship drama with a little bit of time travel uh, mixed in. But the way you identify this, um, this, this character you play as uh, Plan B in, in the show mm-hmm. Plan B. I just got a note that said, please mention Plan B. Uh, <laughs> Plan B. Yeah, <laughs> Plan B on, C- on CBC. Plan B, Plan B. Plan B, B it is. Um, the, uh, that you see him as someone who wants there to be order in the world. And if everything can be kind of done the way that he sees life, then the world would make a lot more sense. Whereas um, Mm -hmm. I think I saw the character as maybe more of like a toxic dude, you know, sort of like not being being great. Like talk to me about tapping into that part of him. Yeah. Well, it's sort of like your job as an actor when you take on a role is because I have the same response guttural,ly like, well, this is a really toxic situation. I mean, I can see very my judgments what can, can come out quite easily as a viewer and go, well, this is really problematic, and I can see all the places this person's making a mistake, so on and so forth. When you know you play a role, you have to kind of look at it through a different prism. You have to try and come at it from, well, why? Why is this person doing this? State the reason for your trip. (laughs) The reason for my trip. The system could not register your answer. Please try again. Please try again. I want a second chance. The system could not register your answer. Please try again. To win back my girlfriend. I'm sorry, I did not understand. That's a f***ing reason! Please try again. He deeply believes that if he's just given the chance to just change a few small details, he'll be able to get this right. He'll be able to change his behavior, you know, and he's not really realizing that at the same time he's he's doing the the most ultimately toxic thing possible, which is um, changing the direction of other human beings alive, namely his his partner, in this case, Ev, um, and 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 leaving her out of that decision making process. We're invited to it's your mom's birthday. You remembered? Yeah, yeah, of course. And and she's having a dinner. And uh, and I and I think we should go. Are you messing with me? You never want to go to my parents. Yeah, but I, I want to go now. But I mean, I think that's relatable. If you were given the chance, if you had messed up your life, if you had made decisions that had gotten yourself into a situation that was seemed irreparable, and you were given the opportunity to go back and make it right again somehow, you know, who wouldn't maybe take that opportunity? Does, does making the show then change, um, I guess, your relationship with regret? Playing this character makes me want to be much more present and much more accountable in my own life. Um, be very careful about the decisions that I make and then be very aware of when a mistake has been made and know how to create reparations in the moment. You know, I think I believe that we're constantly faced with the same struggle and the same challenge until we figure out a way to overcome it. And usually that's by changing some part of ourselves, evolving, growing and realizing that, you know, the reason that that challenge keeps presenting itself to our lives is 
is because we haven't quite figured out how to process it or deal it or move through it. So we all have that opportunity in our lives to, to change the way that we interact with a challenge. Doing, doing research for this interview and watching the show at the same time is interesting because there's a scene, I think, pretty early on in Plan B, Plan B, the show, Plan B. Uh, plan B, Plan, plan B. B. Yeah, Plan B, where mm-hmm. um, your, your characters are lying in bed, um, mm-hmm. you and, and Kareem Vernas, and you're talking about um, wanting to be in the moment versus always feeling like you're somewhere else. I think I try to be in the moment, to be grateful for each experience as it's happening. That's my problem. I'm always trying to be somewhere other than where I am. Like the life that I want is just always out of reach. I'm I'm particularly um, susceptible to, to this kind of factoid because it's a really big part of my life uh, as well. Is is um, I believe you have a meditation practice, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, can you can you talk to me a little bit about that? About like. Because that's a big part of my life. So using that to try and find balance and presence in your life. I mean, it's been absolutely essential. I'm far from a perfect meditator, not that there's any such thing. But I have said in the last like three years, it's become a very serious part of my life. And I can tell when I've drifted away from it because of the exact thing that I think we're talking about, which I find myself consistently in moments where I'm not in the moment. You know, I could be, I could go days, you know, I've been too busy. Things have been going on. The kids are sick. You know, there's a problem at school, like whatever. We always find our reasons and I'll get to the end of a two or three or four day stretch and I haven't meditated. And I, and I realize that's the problem that I'm not being present for anything, the good stuff or the bad stuff. And it's a pretty simple and miraculous fix I've found in my life. And I, I don't know if you find it's the same thing that I'm really capable of basically dealing with anything if I'm just present for it. Yeah, and watching the show reminded me, and, and we're going to sound like we're doing this on a cushion right now, but it reminded me that, that there, <laughs> there is no, there actually is no past. You know, there is no, there is no, um, there is no such thing as the past. There is no such thing as the future. There actually is only the present moment and everything else is, is made And it's up. perfect. Yeah, exactly. Now we're really getting into it, but, and it's perfect the way that it is. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Whatever is happening in this moment is perfect the way that it is. I mean, I am so far from being able to actually live that way or accept that in every moment of my life. But I do know that when I am faced with serious struggle or emotional distress or something has just gone wrong, you know, I have two choices. It's 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 reject it, fight it, blame people, get angry, try and fix it or just accept that that is the way that it's going. It's happening for a reason, whatever that means, but it is happening. And in that sense, it is kind of perfect the way that it is. And my, what I do next with that information is the most important thing I can do. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q and you're listening to my conversation with the Canadian actor, Patrick J. Adams, who a lot of people know from his Screen Actors Guild nominated role in the show Suits. Patrick played a character named Mike Ross, who had this big uh, romantic arc with this character named Rachel Zane, who was played by Meghan Markle. And they both left the show in 2018 after this big moment. If I've learned one thing, it's that we never know what the future holds. And that could be a scary thing. But I know that there is nothing that I can't handle when I have you by my side. 
You are the strongest man I've ever met, and you make me stronger. You're the husband I've always wanted, and I can't wait to begin our adventure together. So, listen, I don't want to ask Patrick J. Adams questions about Meghan Markle. Like, that's not my that's not my job. But I wanted to know about what it's like when you're that close to something so big, like the Harry and Meghan marriage and, and backlash, and how that affected him. Here's the rest of our conversation. Um, Patrick, I got a question for you, and I want to be cautious about um, how I ask it, because if I ask it the wrong way, um, it, it won't come across the way I want. I wanted to talk about um, suits, and let me let me get to the end of the, the question. Um, okay, okay, sure. So, so <laughs> I mean, I'm sure people now, when they hear suits, they think about your, your, your former co-star, Meghan Markle, you know, got married to Prince Harry, and it was a big thing. Mm-hmm. What I'm curious about is sort of um, something that happened to you through this, which is, you know, there was sort of a, my understanding of it is that there was a, some kind of accusation of bullying against Meghan Markle. And what you did, because she was your friend and your coworker, you spoke out in um, defense of her. Mm -hmm. I'm really curious about, I think there's a lot of like theoretical conversation around what social media and and kind of bullying and all that stuff is doing to like us as a society, but it's rare that I get the chance to talk to someone who, even on a micro level like you did, found yourself at sort of like the center of it, because mm-hmm. you know you you kind of got piled on. I think I believe you had to delete your social. You decided to delete some of your social media accounts. I think I'm still on there, but I, I basically just avoid my mentions section. Yeah. So I, I wonder if you could just talk to me a, a little bit about about that like maybe sure. you, especially given everything you just t- you just talked to me about yeah yeah of course um i'm gonna move slowly because i choose my words carefully on this subject, yeah of course, so no of course what you say it could so easily be taken out of context and the truth is is that i'm really not at the center of anything and that if i had one regret about sort of stepping into that fray which i don't really have many but it's that it makes it seem like i'm at the center of anything and, yeah. and all i was doing when i spoke out about that publicly um, was just standing up for a friend, yeah. somebody who I worked with for years. Um, I just felt like it was important for someone to stand up and just go like, this is insane. I, I'm curious about what that does to you. Like when you're on the other, when you're at sort of the receiving end of a lot of online kind of horribleness. Look, I don't, I don't, I don't like it. I didn't like, I, as I said, I stopped checking into my mentions account. I just started blocking a lot of accounts. I didn't want to interact with it. It made me regret a little bit stepping into it because I just felt like, yeah, who am I to be walking into this? Um, Megan is a powerful woman and she is capable of dealing with a lot. And when I stepped into it, I was like, I don't think this is the place for me to be engaging. And I certainly didn't want to continue it because it's not a conversation on social media. It's just a, um, you know, no one's there to have an intelligent dialogue about anything. So, but I just know, I know what it's like to like interview someone on my show who's like, you know, in the news a lot. And I can catch the sort of strays of that. Like, and, and I think to myself, like, if this is like 2% of what this person I've talked to is, has gone oh through, I can't even imagine. Yeah. It, you know? I, I mean, I'm not built for it is what I learned yeah, from yeah, this process. Like that level of scrutiny 
that level of everything you do and say. I mean, just in this right now, we're talking about Megan. I know that at any point, any clip from this conversation could be taken from someone else. It's taking a conversation. Not, I'm not worried yeah. about it. The, the nice thing is no one it. listened to me, so it's okay. Don't worry about it. Don't <laughs> not worry about sure, it. Okay. Sure. But more importantly, like I'm aware of that. And that's like you said, 1% of what the Megans or the Harrys or any of these people that are in the limelight constantly um, do have to deal with. Like there's no move that goes unscrutinized or taken out of context. So I, I have learned through that process, I'm not built for that level of, uh, of scrutiny. And it's, it makes me want to make my world a little bit smaller rather than, you know, yeah. bigger. Yeah. Be, uh, surround myself with the things that uh, matter to me most. I've had two kids in the last year and it's yeah. like, that's all I want to do. I would like, like, just take care of what I can take care of. It's all so unmanageable out there. <laughs> that side, the life at that size. I mean, and it was, a, it was a pretty amazing run there, you know, a Screen Actors Guild nomination for Suits and Outer Critics Circle nomination for, for Take Me Out on, on Broadway. Mm-hmm. Um, and you spent the first 19 years of your life living here in Canada before you moved to LA, right? Yeah, that's correct. I'm from Toronto. I was born and raised in Toronto. You don't have to tell me this if you don't want to, but is there, do you feel pulled back here at all? Uh, I, yes, I love Toronto. Um, it's, it's, it's a push and pull, you know, I don't feel the desire to call it home again, especially after I sort of returned for a second time for suits. Like I, I left Toronto when I was 19 and thought, oh, great, that part of my life is over. Like I, I was ready to move on to whatever was next. And when I packed my bags, it really felt permanent. So to be brought back to the city for this major job at first was a little like, oh, this is not like I wanted to be out in the world, not back where I was an awkward and insecure kid. Like this isn't where I'm supposed to be, but it ended up being miraculous. I got to relearn the city as an adult. Um, I got to make it a new, a new home for myself. I got to be close to my family. But that being said, then when I left again at the end of suits, I felt, I felt, okay, now, now I'm, now I'm done with Toronto. Not like I can't come back, but I don't want to live here anymore. There's, there's a, there's a certain joy in seeing you in plan B in Montreal. There's a certain joy in seeing you in like that Canadian sort of context, you know? I, I'll tell you, it was a big reason I wanted to do the job as well. It's I, I'd actually gone to my reps and said, like, I really want to be working in Canada more. I think there's something that happens when you um, leave Canada and you, and you come down. And I was quite young when I left. I didn't have a career when I left, obviously. It was just coming out of high school. And so I built this whole sort of career for myself down here. And I think there's this expectation that you're not that you don't want to come back. You know, that, oh, you've left and you're down there and you don't you don't want to participate in what we're doing up here. And I. And I sort of woke up one day, I was like, well, that's just not true. And maybe the the powers that be in Canada don't know that that's not true. So we sort of just went on a, a mission to to see if there was anything that I could come and work on in Canada. And and literally days later, um, Plan B came along. I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting, I'm, I'm grateful to your time. Like, it's an interesting sort of... Um, a couple of things coming together, you know, you, you were hoping to do a little bit more work here. You get to do it in Canada. You're thinking a little mm-hmm. bit about like the way you want the world to me to be and what you force onto the world. And then this character is sort of based on that. You're meditating mm-hmm. a lot. You're thinking a lot about mindfulness and the idea of being present and there being no future in the past. I mean, it's a beautiful little convergence of, of you yeah. and your life right now. This, this show turned yeah. out to be. Yeah, it has been. It's been, uh, it's been beautiful. Well, it's lovely to meet you. Thanks for, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Tom. I really appreciate it. Patrick J. Adams stars in Plan B, which airs Mondays at 9, 9.30 in Newfoundland and parts of Labrador on CBC Television. You can watch it for free on CBC Gym. Mm-hmm.
All right, that is it for the show today. Uh, tomorrow on the show, Adele Berté, who may not be a household name, but that's kind of the point. She was the front woman of a band called The Bloods, the first ever all-woman, all-queer, out rock band. And Adele's going to be here to talk about how homophobia held her career back in the 80s and what it's like to watch so many queer musicians top the charts in 2023. Adele Berté will be here. Uh, if you want to follow me on Instagram, I'm at Tom Joe Power. The show is at CBCQ. We'll see you soon. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.